everybody, and welcome to another episode of um, The Two Half Squads. Is that what it's called? Yes. Oh, The Two Half Squads. It has okay. been a while, Jeff, yeah. since we've gotten together. My name is... Um, Jeff, I just called you Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Yes, and your name is... Dave. Dave, and we are having problems with our memories today. Well, more me than Jeff, but yeah. thank, you, thank you, Jeff, for throwing yourself in we the mix. Were, we, we were just, I, I didn't want you to feel bad about yourself. We were just Man. talking about this before the show, how... I think the listeners have noticed that Dave is having recall problems <laughs> I don't on think the show. Anybody, really? You think somebody's well, noticing? If you go back to that first episode and compare it to the 60th. Yeah. Wow, 60 episodes. 60 episodes. Wow. High five. No, don't. I hate that. I hate high five. I yeah, too. You can do it Please wrong. It can be embarrassing. Five. Yeah, it's, it's you know, awful. Kids at school are teaching me all these fancy handshakes. That's better than high yeah. five. Anything's better than high five. And this is the one and only show dedicated 100% mostly. Mostly. To the greatest game in the world. Um, Advanced Squad. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. I'll thank never you. forget those words. Yeah. I'll be saying them thing. in the grave. Yes, you will be. At your eulogy, we'll be reading from the rule book. Oh, my son wants to have a big mausoleum to himself when he dies. He's uh, eighth grade. And <laughs> well, it's good to plan ahead. We told him he should start saving his money, and he says he will use his money for some of that. And he asked if I wanted to be in his mausoleum with him. And I said, no, I think I want to be in the ground so when the um, zombie infestation comes, mm-hmm. I'll be able to do the clawing out of the ground thing. Oh, you've always wanted to do that, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. You know. Coming out of the mausoleum is pretty cool, but you know those hands tearing up through the ground, that's really super yeah, that's scary. Cool. It so is. The, yeah, the zombie, what is it called? The zombie... Uh, apocalypse. Apocalypse, thank yeah. you. Um, you are having a memory pro- problem. <laughs> well, I was going to say zombie resurrection, but that would yeah. can be confusing, some issues yeah. there. And I would not want to be cremated for that reason. They don't. Those people don't get to... Have their bodies come out for the zombie yeah. apocalypse, right? Yeah, that's true. So, I know you're into cremation, aren't you? Or yeah, I'm going to do the cremation rethink thing. it. Rethink yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. You make a very good case. Oh, there you go. Well, thanks everybody for putting up with that. <laughs> so, so far, this is episode sixty-one. Is it? Because I yeah. really am losing track. I, I'm pretty sure. What's the memory problem. We'll have to look. Well, we've both been kind of busy. We just made it through the holiday season, and Dave had a birthday. Happy birthday, Dave. Yes, and while Jeff was working extra hard in, in his work, Dave had that little break there. Yeah. You know, and some of my other friends, not Jeff, but my other friends had the break off, and I managed to record two half episodes of ASL Extras. Excellent. So you can expect one from, we selected Beyond Valor. Mm-hmm. Dave Timonen and Mark Woods are playing that scenario, the penetration of Rostov. Mm-hmm. And that'll, you know, we'll try and finish the game up and get it out soon. And then, because we didn't get to finish, we played like five hours and still haven't finished. And then I had Tom Barklow out after Christmas, and he and I started recording. Oh, a scenario. Oh. <laughs> we'll get. We'll get back to you, folks. It's from insert oh. name here. Oh, sorry for yelling. Insert. It's starter kit, and it had tanks. Early battles. It's going to be <laughs> early battles, and you can expect that. Also, you starter kit players. We're doing that just for you because we thought Great. those guys don't get enough from us. No, they don't. Yeah. So Tom and I are doing that one. Yeah. A couple of people have mentioned that recently. They'd like to see more starter kit stuff, which we did a lot more of in the early days. And so, yeah, we should get back and do that. 
And so, today's episode is about... Night Rules. Night Rules. Yeah, and in, um, in celebration of tonight's rules, the uh, tonight's beverage is Guinness Black Lager, which I've never seen before. And the good old Honey Brown Ale. Oh, you I brought have, Honey Brown yeah, Ale? I have it over oh, there. nice. But right now I'm drinking my tea because my memory problems are bad enough already. Yeah, so maybe the tea will help you. This is uh, cold brewed with roasted barley. I don't know. It seems like a sellout by Guinness, but well, it's uh, not it a, tastes good. Yeah, I've had it before, and I'm looking forward to having one in a little bit. Oh, okay. But before we get tonight, um, we've got a lot to do. Let's let's just jump let's right into cracking. some letters. We got some great letters. Here we go. It's time for letters. From our fans, if we, we can, have fa- we have fans. That's pretty cool. Call them that. That's pretty cool. It's very gratifying. All righty. I played that from hey, a different spot tonight. That, that was, was really good, Jeff. Yeah. That caught me off guard a little yeah. bit there. It's a part of the song we don't often hear, so it's nice to have that. So, who's got uh, letters? We got a lot of letters. We got a lot of kept we got a lot of We don't have to read them all. No, just the ones that talk about how great we are. Yes, how fabulous we are. And you have one from Eric. Stroke my ego. Let go, my ego. <laughs> from Eric, do I have one? Was that the question? Was that where we were starting, sir? Yes, yes, I do. I have one from Eric, and it says, and I quote: "Hi, guys." Just listening to the book list from episode 53 and heard that neither of you have read Forgotten Soldier. Stop what you're doing and go pick it up right now. This War Diary is a must-read. If you hear any strange voices from upstairs. Strange voices in the background, that's Robin, my wife. Uh, Forgotten Soldier. Forgotten Soldier. I'm looking at it on on Amazon. It's $13.57, and it says this. This book recounts the horror of World War II on the Eastern Front, as seen through the eyes of a teenage German soldier. At first an exciting adventure, young Guy Sager's war becomes, as the German invasion falters in the icy vastness of the Ukraine, a simple, desperate struggle for survival against cold hunger and, above all, the terrifying Soviet artillery. As a member of the elite Gross-Deutschland division, he fought in all the great battles from Kursk to Kharkov. Wow. So, uh... I'm going to bet Sounds that's very going good. to be sad. Sad, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I can't think of that many Not really like plain ASL happy war on the Eastern Front. But that does sound good. Um, and I am going to put that on my list, though. In case anybody's interested, next show I will be doing a book report on Combat Jump, a book called Combat Jump, The Young Men Who Led the Assault into Fortress Europe, July 1943, by Ed Ruggiero. So if you would like to listen along at that time and want to read the book, do it if you don't want to. Ugh, the heck with you. Hey, yeah, they can read ahead and then... They can read ahead. Uh, we can open up the chat room and they can comment while yeah. you're commenting. What a great idea. And I have one from Pablo, mm-hmm. and he's I think it's the first time he's written here. And he has been listening to the podcast backwards from from the 60s <laughs> down to 18. It's probably a lot more enjoyable backwards. Actually, I... Think about it. I recommend going from episode one on in because the jokes sometimes refer back to previous episodes. Yeah. But... Anyway, here he goes. He says, first of all, given that I play ASL way less than I wish, and your podcast is a substitute for the enjoyment of the game. Granted, it's not a great substitute. 
but it surely it beats Sorting Encounters. Second, I really admire the ability you have to insert humor into the show. It makes it very enjoyable and relaxing. Third, as a non-native English speaker, I congratulate you both on your fine command of the spoken English language. Unlike some of your interviewees, which you will not name, you speak a very pleasant and articulate English. I wonder who he's talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Avoiding slang and tedious repetitions. Well, we had out the tedious repetitions like, you know. I understand that being a family show, cursing is not applicable. Too bad. Some cursing is good for the show. Well, (laughs) sometimes you do cross the line. Fourth, your command of foreign languages is... Fairly weak, except maybe for German. No one is perfect anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Fifth, I hope the release of Festung Budapest, you've realized that the Magyars are not communist tribesmen from Mongolia, which was Dave's guess. Oh, no, it was Jeff's guess he, he wrote here. While reviewing the LFT's Russian Civil War pack. The Magyars? Yeah, I think I had that wrong. Sixth, your rules knowledge sometimes slips. No. no. <laughs> For instance, when doing the early episode about guns, you never clarified the distinction between ordnance and guns. Probably true. Yeah. Seventh of all the sections of your show I've liked the most quiz shows. Ah. Rules sections. Mm-hmm. Those are the boring parts. Yeah. And the interviews. Hard to beat yeah. the interviews. Hard to beat because we don't talk as much. We're not responsible for the content. <laughs> <laughs> the show's on Cavalry and half-tracks were quite illustrative of the interviews. I really liked the ones you did with Ken Smith, Chaz Argent, Lars Thuring, and Mark Pickavage. And, of course, Ian. Yeah. I, I really wanted to like Keith, but the audio was horrible. Well, we did another one, and it was mostly good, except near the end there it got a little echoey. Yeah. It was definitely an improvement. We hope you appreciated that one, Pablo. Sixth box art review is okay, but I don't understand is how on earth Dave's going to get his name on a counter. Oh, already got that. If he slams MMP's choice for covered art in the action packs. They're probably going to recall um, all of uh, w- w- your counters came out with in what? ASL uh, uh, um, starter uh, kit expansion pack. Expansion yes. pack. Yeah, they're going to recall all of those and take your counters out if you're not Oh, good. yes, and he says that would be because... Come on, you just three action pack covers in a row and a fake French accent, and then you expect <laughs> MMP. We know what a good sense of humor they've got over there at MMP. And he says, I cannot fathom what Dave will say about the Festing Budapest cover, which even I find but ugly, if you excuse my French. Probably you want to wait reviewing it until you get your name on that leader, but we did. Well, you did. So, huh, he saw that Festung Budapest cover art, and I thought... I saw it also somewhere. I think we did see it, but yeah. I, I mean, I don't recall offhand. And I don't see a link here it to it, but I have, an, I have a life. It's out there, folks. And thanks for that long letter, Pablo, an entertaining letter. Helps yeah, our show nice. entertaining. Yes. I got a letter from, uh, we got a letter from Ian Willie, and he remarked that uh, he had hit 100 scenarios, which was one of his personal goals for last year. And he Excellent. Had, Congratulations. Yeah, he had 49 yeah. days still left in the year. So I wrote him and I said, congratulations, you know, we should do a little interview sometimes uh, to discuss his notable achievement. And uh, it'd be fun because he speaks with a lovely accent, oh, I'm guessing. Not a fake one. No. Well, to him, it doesn't sound like an accent, but to us it will. And he also recommends that we um, we contact Spencer... Don't remember his full name right now. Who's uh, in Canada? Who's who's done at least a hundred, and then a couple of other guys. Aaron uh, Clevelin did at least one hundred and fifty. Does it scenarios last year? Excellent. Yeah, which is pretty remarkable. So we've got those guys on our list of interviewers. 
interviewees. Interviewees. And I have one from Mark Bloom from Switzerland again. Thanks again for um, contacting us, Mark. He says, recently I saw on your Twitter feed you were playing ASL Night Scenario in anticipation of a show about night rules. This very show. Mm -hmm. I made an extract of my scenario listing to show the scenarios that take place during night. He says it's not complete. Um, He only has official Avalon Hill scenarios on his list. Well, since that show is here now, let's go ahead and refer to that list. Maybe we could post it even. We could. You have from Pegasus Bridge, Ham and Bloody Jam, ASL Action Pack 3, Flea Circus, uh, I played that one with Bob. Uh, Operation Veritable. Obstinate Canadians. I haven't played that one yet. For King and Country, Throwing Down the Gauntlet. I played that with Dave Timonen. Yeah. From Yanks, Taking the Left... <clears throat> taking the Left Lung. Taking yeah. the Left the thing Hand on turn. a woman that's in front of her lung. Oh, really? Yes. Taking the Left Breast? Go... <laughs> You can say breast. Oh, yes, I think you're right, but it's not. It's the T word. So I pl- played that one. Toast? With <laughs> maybe Gary Beams, one of my earlier opponents, like long ago. Red Barricades, The Red House. Great one. Don't remember who I played that with, but I played it. Pegasus Bridge, Howard's Men. I played it with Dave Timonen. Operation, look, the memory is not so bad, yeah, Jeff. Your memory is great. Look your long term memory is great. Operation Veritable, Tickling the Ivories, haven't played it. And Waterfowl played it with Dave Timonen, both wow. from Operation Veritable. West of Alamein, Fort McGregor. I played it with Jim McDermott. I swear these are all accurate. Who's going to challenge Hedge- you on these anyway? Hedge- They're just, we're all going to admire you, and you're just Hedge- making Hell, this up. Hedgerow Clay Pigeons. I must have played it. It's oh, with from Hedgerow Hell, oh. but I have no memory of the name, even of the scenario. I thought you were saying you played it with a guy named Clay Pigeons. <laughs> and we played with Clay oh, Pigeons a nice in the Scottish backyard. Boy, Clay Pigeons. Code of Bushido. Bushido. Shoestring Ridge. Played it, but I remember it, but because it did have night flares, I think. Now, mm-hmm. Listeners can check me on that. I think it had the uh, trip flares. When oh, I yeah. I that had trip flares. Mm-hmm. And then Bloody Reef Tarwell, Hell Wouldn't Have It. I don't remember that one. Did you play any of those? Did you play some of those? Yes. Shorter? Everyone except for oh. Operation Veritable. I yeah. didn't get through that one yet, that game. Wow. And Jeff has played a few night scenarios, too, now. Yes, I have. So maybe we could post this somehow. Jeffrey will add yeah, it to we the could to-do add. list. Yeah. Yeah. I'll start one up. Yeah. And... Got a little note here from Dave Winston, who says, uh, just mentions to us that Eddie Del Rio, who does some uh, tutorials on Board Game Geek has just posted a new one covering tanks. So uh, we'll put that link in the show notes, and you can see in there. It says, This installment of the Starter Kit Example of Play series features the SK-3 vehicles-only scenario S-21 Clash at Boriskovka. The Example of Play assumes experience with the prior Starter Kit 1 and 2. So once, you got to go back and look through them, but uh, it looks like a very nicely done tutorial. And so take a look. We thank you for telling us and him for putting that out there. Yeah. I have one here, Jeff, from Mark Woods. I just listened to episode 19 enjoyed the detailed explanation of the rally phase. That said, the history lesson was my favorite segment, listening to Dave recount the heroics of his uncle, Ed Kleinschmidt. Remember that one? Yeah. And he mentions his own father who died when he was six in 1965. He 
says, I have a picture of him in sailor dress and knew he'd served during World War II, but knew little else. Well, at my sister's this weekend, I found a stack of papers she'd recently obtained from the Office of Naval Records in St. Louis providing details of my dad's history in the service. And then he tells us some of that history, which I won't read all of that on the air. But it is fascinating. And, um, again, we encourage everyone to look into your own family records and yeah. and find out how your relatives had served in World War II and, and other history. Right. And really, uh, not just people in the armed forces served, but a lot of people at home, as we know, as I've mentioned from my mom's experiences of of the, the home contributions to the yes. to the war effort. She worked for U.S. Timex in Waterbury, Connecticut, making bomb sites. Then we have quite a lengthy email from Tim Keller. I don't think we've heard from Tim before, so thanks for writing, Tim. Long letter, but one thing he says was, uh, quote, I am confused by those who disparage the ASL starter kit. How many first-generation ASLs would there have been without squad leaders' original programmed instruction approach? How many new players are being brought into the ASL fold via the starter kits now? I've read complaints on various blogs about MMP's slow development and publication of ASL products. As far as I can tell, it's a simple equation of supply and demand. Without the demand, MMP will have no reason to increase supply at a more rapid rate. I see ASLSK as being a draw to new players, ultimately getting into full ASL. Yeah, and I think that's probably true. That's Chopping true. out that whole rule book is tough, and yeah. um, I think Keith alluded to that in our interview, that that starter idea has been working. Yeah, it seems to be working very well. So, um, And I don't know, are there people that really disparage the starter? I guess there are some people I think that so. think you should just jump into the full thing. But, yes. Yeah. You know, not all gamers are created equal. Correct. And some people are going to look at that rule book and just say, no way. Yeah. There's no way they'd want to get started with that. And I'm even starting to get comfortable with the concept that some won't and that that's actually fine. Yeah. Because I was thinking, I hope they don't put out much more new stuff for the starter kit so people will make the transition. Mm -hmm. But realizing, you know, limited time, whatever, that's fine. Yeah. And I have a letter from N.H. Paul. And he says, um, hey, get doing some desert stuff. And so uh, we will someday. Oh, definitely. Tonight it's night. Yeah. Desert's going to come up someday. Yeah. We've got time. And we'd like to say thank you, Paul, for the kind donation. Very nice donation. We're going to um, name the wing of our local, uh, the new wing of the local hospital after Paul. Yes, we are. Yeah. It's a very, very small one in miniature. Very small. But a generous donation even for a small hospital. And the Texas Tourney coming up June 21 to 24th, 2012. I like that they give us advance notice. So there you go, folks. That Surely you'll hear this podcast before June. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that'll be about it for letters. Thank you, everybody, for writing us. We love to hear from you. Hey, you know what it's time for now? What time is it, Jeff? It's not time for what's in the box. So if you were waiting for that, uh, you're going to have to wait a little longer. (laughs) It's time for what have you been playing lately. And we don't have any music for that, but I think we should, don't you? Yes. What have you been playing lately? What have you been playing lately? I like it. I I can tell you've been playing the recorder lately. (laughs) I, I have. 
I can't play the recorder, but I have one because I think they're kind of cool. It is cool. And, and you played it well, Jeff. Yeah, I think. I thought so, too. So that can be our new theme music for, <laughs> yeah. for what you've been yeah, playing yeah. lately. Yes. And if you'd like us to not use that, please send cash or money. <laughs> which you should do anyway, folks. Cash or money. Which one? <laughs> which would you rather, cash or money? Cash or checks? I have played J93, the Porachoy, I don't know how to pronounce it, Bridgehead. And I played it with Mark Woods and as the Russian against Dave Timonen. This is the massive game, nine turns. Whoa. I think there were 30 Russian counters coming on board. It was previewed and Roar as being pro-German. Mm-hmm. And yet our Russians won. It was three boards. And it had uh, two objectives for the Russian. Three full boards, looks and, like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, full. And we kind of did an attack on the one end. We moved the troops from, I forget now which direction, like east to west, or and then the reinforcements came out on the west. And really, we thought the tanks gave a little bit of an edge to the Russians. At least in our game, they started to break down the one end, and we managed to capture a building. Uh, so that's how our plane in Portia Bridge went. It took five hours that went by incredibly fast. Wow, yeah. And I'm surprised you got it done that quickly. Well, Dave... Did you play it through Dave the end? threw in the towel uh, before the last, like, two turns, but it was looking overwhelming uh, against the Germans, actually, and by this time. what were the victory conditions? Well, you, you, they could have... Russian would win immediately if there were no unbroken Germans within five hexes of the end of the board where you come on earliest. Yeah. Because you get a lot of these groups as reinforcements, like, you know, 10 at a time coming on from different sides. Yeah. Or at game end, if they control one or both of the two villages on the board. So we went for the farthest away village from Dave, kind of tried to pin them down, the Germans, and then moved to the furthest away village where the Russian tanks came out on that end. That helped it work. Yeah. But That looks like a lot of counters. It was a lot of counters. Yeah. I was really wanting to chop this one out. It's from the journal, and it's one that I hadn't played, of course, because it's so large until we had the winter break and managed to meet on a weekday. Yeah. What year was that uh, The at the actual historical the, action? Oh, 41 in Russia. So oh, the okay. tanks were kind of early, and there were no Panzerfaust threats from the Germans. Ah, yes. So that gave us, you know, some some ability with the tanks. And when my wife came home But still, night, it was, did you say, I'm sorry, did you say it was pro-German? On Roar? Roar. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when my wife came home that night for dinner, my daughter said, we were talking in the kitchen, and she said something like, Dad played in the basement all day long. <laughs> it was like noon to five. Yeah. Which seemed like, but boy, that was a quick five hours. Yeah. Women don't understand how men can play a game for that five long. hours. Well, yeah. And it was some socializing, too. But Yeah. And then I played Swedish Volunteer Corps oh. from SV2, the... Swedish pack with the white Swede counters. Oh, yeah. And Dave Timonen and I are playing those, and I lost with the Russians against Dave's Swedes. And I don't remember much more about this one. Have you played lately, Jeff? Uh, You know, I haven't played other than um, when I played you, when we did our last couple of night scenarios. And what was one of those? Well, we played Old Hickory. Uh, this is from Action Pack. I don't know which Action Pack, but yeah, it's AP we thirty nine, five or six or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, scenario designed by Pete Schelling. This is takes place in France, nineteen forty four. Germans against the Americans, and it was our first uh, night game. My first night game. So it, it was. 
talking more about that later as we get into the mm-hmm. rules. I'm sure you'll refer to that game. Yes, we will. And I got pretty well clobbered in this one, as I recall. I was not moving quickly enough. Yes, that was it. You ran out of time. Yeah, I ran out of time. Uh, I got kind of hung up going down the main road. I did nail some tanks with some, some bazookas in close nasty. range because of the night yeah. and so on. That's something I kind of struggle with is my tanks get all uh, I get, they get all clumped together and then one gets blown up and the others have a hard time getting through the mess. Yeah, there were no infantry protecting their other flank, yeah. so I was hidden there yeah. with a guy with a baz and so on. Yeah, but it was still fun, wasn't it, Jeff? Wasn't it for Jeff? <laughs> wasn't it fun? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I played uh, scenario FT-135, Le Franc Terrer, mm. got a light. And look, it was a night game, too. Oh. And I thought Dave Timonen would join us this evening. He might join us for part two of the night Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. I haven't seen Dave show. in a while. And, um, I and won he has with a good the, radio voice. I won with the White Russians against Dave. Mm-hmm. Some cavalry and night rules, too. And then I played J-140 all down the line with Ron Schatz and one with the Germans. It's a short one. We did that on a passel night, and this one I remember. He was coming across the street with everything, and I just laid down some good resid fire and then subsequent shots. It took, like, every shot I had to isolate that whole road, and he just couldn't make the crumble checks. Huh? Yeah, coming wow. across. But That's but tough. I vividly remember that one. That's tough. And then you and I played Midnight Clear. We played this one second? Yes. Oh. Because this looks like actually a good scenario. For if you're getting started with the night rules. Yes, that's what you thought would be an excellent one to get started with. Yes, night so rules. if you're if you're looking for something to get started with, this is from uh, OA23. Uh, uh, opera, out of um, the attic? No, yes. Out, out of, the of the attic, attic. right. Out of the attic 2, right? Yes, because I don't yeah. have one. Darn it. Yeah. Listeners, send me OA1, out of the attic 1. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. So this just uses half of board 36, and it's infantry only. There are no vehicles in this at all. It was the two patrols walking at night. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. So it was it was fun to play. We learned a lot about night rules on this one. I actually I came a little closer on this one. Yes, and it had a no, no one had the no-move counters yeah. that, that would have complicated it further. So that made it even more simple to learn the night rules yeah. as your first night scenario. Yeah. And then I played Prelude to Spring with Tom Barkalo. Big, long boards. Oh, yeah. Four boards, but half boards. boards. Mm -hmm. And having trouble remembering this one. I won with the Germans. Yeah, big tanks. I don't remember much more about that one. And then I played another... Of the Swedish pack. My gosh, man. You were cranking them out. SV4. With Dave Timonen, he and I are trying to play through those now before we go back to the Russian Revolution ones. Yeah. And, Jeffrey. Yes. I have three and a half games to reach my 1,111th game. That's going to be special. Hooray. Why do I have half games? Oh, because I have a half-played game with Tom Barklow. Oh, okay. Three and a half. And I will reach 1,111 games. Uh, that is a remarkable achievement. And we forgot Dave. to celebrate when I hit 1,000. In fact, I didn't notice that I was hitting 1,000. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. So I'm hoping I'll remember this time. I hope so, too, and I'd like to be part of that. Maybe you you and I will play something yes. for that. Huh? How about that? Yeah. You know what? I'll even let you win. Because <laughs> I probably have played 111 games so far. Attaboy, 
probably played more than you think. Yeah, probably so. I'm going to bet you. Yeah, I'm always uh, I'm always airing on the side, on, on the low side, like way low. Yeah. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. And starting here with episode 61, we have a new sponsor. Hooray. This is very exciting. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Ford Motor Company. I know. I was shocked when I yeah. got that email. <laughs> yes. They're sending us a, each a car. A new automobile. A new car. A new car. No, actually, um, this episode is brought to you by Eclectic Zeal, which is a wonderful website. You can check it out. Uh, we'll put it on the, a link, of course, on the, the show notes. But if you simply go to eclecticzeal.com, You'll find a very nice website that caters to the gamer. Plays uh, or they sell all different kinds of games, and their their goal is to help people find games that they love and play. We them. Love games, yeah. And so uh, we got an email from uh, Glenn Oberhauser, who is starting this website, and said, uh, "Would you guys mind promoting our game site?" So we recommend everybody go and look at this. We sell all the MMP ASL products, he says, as well as our favorite war games, family games, and strategy games. We ship. We give you one reward point for every dollar you spend in the store. That's a nice thing. Sounds great. Additionally, we give all customers 100 complimentary reward points on the first purchase. And reward points, points can be spent at the customer's discretion to save money on any purchase. Now, this part I thought was spectacular. We offer a full money-back guarantee if you do not like the games you play, uh, the games you buy. So, Well, I wouldn't push that too far. I would like to return my squad leader. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> that you'll never do. I had, a ba- I had a bad week last week. I want to return all this stuff. I can't take it anymore. And not only that, but listen to this. I'll whisper this because it's kind of a secret. Two Half Squad's listeners can use a coupon code of 2HALF. Until the end of January 2012 to save 5% on your first purchase. How about that? Outstanding. Pretty spectacular. And it's a very nice website. Uh, lots of games. Lots of different categories of games. They've got snack games. I, I like the way they categorize their games. Snack games, light supper games, full course oh. games, kids table games, mess hall games, <laughs> leftovers. <laughs> Very cute. That's excellent. Yeah. I was always curious why they called games beer and pretzel games because I have played some games while eating beer and pretzels. And then uh, yeah, I just blow up like a balloon. Yeah. I had to cut my pants off last week. <laughs> I don't want you to picture that in your head, though. No. So uh, check out Eclectic Zeal at eclecticzeal.com. Great pricing, too, by the way. We looked at their pricing. Yep, impressive. Very competitive pricing. Great spot to shop for your gaming needs. Check them out. Now they will know why they are afraid of the dark. Now they will learn why they fear the night. It's time for uh, rules section. Yeah, let's jump into the meat let's of the jump thing, in. shall and we? I think we should have music for the rules section, don't you? Yeah, we really don't. It's time for rules. It's time for rules. Oh, sudden ending on that one. <laughs> now, I got a, uh, a little hint on what the rules section is tonight. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, name this quote from this famous um, literary work. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Good fences make good neighbors. That is uh, actually not correct. This is That was actually the, the first line, a translation of the first line of Dante's Inferno. Wow. From the Divine Comedy. Well, that's awfully grim. It is grim. For it's a kind comedy. Of a, it's kind of, yeah, I know. Well, in the strictest sense, a comedy is uh, any story that ends well, that ends on a yeah, high note. Yeah, back in the old days, or yeah, the old days, college-educated yeah. people. Yeah, for the rest of us, yeah, it means stupid humor. Yes, and the, the, you know what I love about uh, the Divine Comedy, Dante's Divine Comedy, is the the triangular shape of the <laughs> that, he, that he wrote the poetry. I love that. All right, so those are haikus. Yeah. Night. Night rules. Rule one. Talking about the night rules. Uh-huh. All right. And we've played some night rules, so let's let's go. We let's, did. Tell me about night rules, Dave. All right. What? Starting off, Jeffrey, you have your night visibility range. This is in the rule book uh, section E. e. Yeah. Rule one. I'm skipping yeah. the pre, like E.1, point 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 Yeah. Read them yourself. <laughs> one. All right. 1.1. One point one. 1. 1. Night. Night visibility range. Do you remember what that was? NVR. Well, that's the distance as as uh, defined in the in the scenario rules of the uh, how far you can see. Right. You cannot see all the way across the board anymore. No. Not when it's nighttime. No. And this range can be zero. It can be more. It can be a lot more. Right. We thought yeah. it could go up to like nine or something, even six. Certainly, average ones tend to be around two. To three hexes, night visibility range. Yes, how far you can see. Now, according to um, according to what we've been told recently, in in actual life, on a dark night with no moon, you can see about twenty yards. Oh, where'd you hear that from? Um, from flying pigs. Oh, our, I was our, told that by flying pigs. From Jack, our new historian. Yeah. Jack is our historian. At the end of the show, we're going to do a little, if we have time on our show, to yeah. do a little um, historical re- uh, report from yeah. a, a listener, Jack, who's a new addition to our program. Yes, he's a contributor, contributing artist. And and, and, and on full moon night, uh, maybe uh, 200 to maybe 400 yards. It is much brighter on a full moon night. Yeah. I'm always amazed when I walk outside at night. And again, this is how you think sometimes when you're an ASLer. Yeah. I do... Look at the night range. I do too. Yeah, and think, wow, you know, it's brighter outside than I thought it was yeah. at night when the full moon is out. Yeah, and when there is no moon, it is dark. It's really dark, and the clouds have something to do with that too. That's coming up a little later. Yeah. So, there are times you can see people beyond that night visibility range, whether it's that one hex, zero hexes, or six hexes. To see beyond those, they have. Uh, Special rules for that. One is a gun flash. Do you remember what that was? Yes. Would you like to tell us? That's when the guns flash. Yes, when you fire them. When you fire a gun, there's a flash. Now, I know our, our new historian friend Jack's going to be very irate at this, but when I'm, we make comments like, I thought the Germans had some powderless flash. Flashless powder. Powder stuff they yeah. used. That doesn't appear in ASL. That I know of. Mm. Germans have the same gun flash everybody else has. 
Yeah, I guess that's when, right. When I was yeah. playing um, Battleground miniatures, they had different rules for the Germans' gun flashes at night. Oh, really? But again, I haven't checked the history of this. Maybe it'll turn up in January. Yeah, we'll have to look that up maybe by next show. Um, and now, you can see beyond that when they fire a weapon, that creates the gun flash. Yeah. So you can see those. You can also see illuminated locations. So if the opponents are under a star shell, mm-hmm. which we'll be talking flares, about, well, yeah. star shells, um, next to a burning building, it would yeah. illuminate the hex by them or more. Or a burning bush. The burning bush would certainly illuminate a heck of a lot with that yeah. fire. Yes. Or if they're standing under the street lamps at the corners of the intersections of the blocks, right? They would be illuminated in a raincoat. <laughs> wearing sunglasses <laughs> yeah, at night. Yeah, sunglasses. So, yeah, you should always sh- shoot out the street lamps if you don't want to be seen at night. But don't, sh- don't shoot out the burning bush. No, you, you couldn't. Well, no, you couldn't, no. but you wouldn't want to try. No. Uh, illuminated locations. So those you can fire at at half firepower. Treat them as a concealed target. Well, the gun flashes. Okay. Treat them as a concealed. Yeah, gun we'll flashes. Right yeah. Point is, you can see beyond yeah. the night visibility range to those lit up areas. Yeah. Now, they have a little chart here. Which takes a little getting used to. You know, when I first started playing, it took me a while yeah. to, to remember. I can only see so far two hexes, I think, in, in that scenario we played. I can only see two hexes. Right. And then you have to remember to look for those further out illuminated locations yeah. or gun flashes. Right. That are around. And take advantage of those whenever those when come you up. see them. Yeah. Now, they have some do-your-own rules for determining the night visibility range, which is a chart here. I won't go into that. Um, but the night visibility range, does it stay the same the whole game? No, it can vary. It can vary from turn to turn, actually. Yeah, you remember uh, how? D- depending on, well, it's going to depend on if the SSR said that there's a moon and clouds and things like that. So... You roll as you roll for weather. It can um, you would also do a roll to determine whether or not the moon is going to be come out from behind the clouds or etc. Correct. Ish? Correct. And you only make that roll after the first rally phase. It won't yeah, you don't do it on the first one for the opening turn. Right. But and um, it also is reads as 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 follows. I'll I'll read it to you. If a six on the color dial results, a one hex change of the base night visibility range will will happen. Yeah. Exception. If the scenario specifies scattered clouds and a half or full moon, the night visibility range change is not necessarily a one hex change, but is equal to another die roll, a subsequent final die roll, Mm -hmm. one die, divided by three for a half moon or divided by two for a full moon. Yeah. So six divided by two is three hexes. It will change up to three hexes. Six divided by two. Oops. <laughs> a di- final die roll divided by three for the half moon. So six divided by three is two. Two. Right. So it will change less for a half moon, more for a full moon. Now, I will say, when we played that, when, when we first started playing that, I thought it was really a pain in the... You know, a real pain in the... To have to roll that. To have to roll out. that. But it was when fun. we roll... It, yes, when we rolled and we got a result that made a shift in that, it was really fun because it could go either way. You know, and of course, if it goes in 
well, it's not one person or another's favor. It just changes things. You got to, you know, you got to think about things a little different, but it can really change it. Yeah, there's times when Which you kind of cool want the street to be darker so you can run yeah. across it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and not be shot at. Yeah, and so you're hoping for that change. I, yeah, I think it's wonderfully fun. Yeah, I found again that I really enjoyed the night rules. I really enjoyed them. Yeah. I have played most all those scenarios uh, as I go in order. You know, but uh, it's only it's not that many pages. Oh, it's like One, 12, two, 13, three, four. 13 pages. It's six. With no pictures. It's six pages. <laughs> I think that they should have included some pictures. They have little pictures. Yeah. The NVR, small the NVR pictures. counter right there, black. It is kind of a lot of letters rules. NVR. It's, it's, it's only kind of, six pages, uh, Jeff. Only six the Pacific pages. is like 80 pages. Yeah. You think it's too much? The night rules. No, I don't. Okay. Who am I? Who am I to say it's too Who much? Who am I? <laughs> I'm Jean Valjean. <laughs> so... When the night visibility range change happens, the white determines whether the base increases or decreases. Less than or equal to three lowers it. And a white greater than or equal to five raises the night range. And a white die roll of four results in no change. Before the first star shell is placed, a four will increase it. Now, why they had to complicate it like that, I don't know. I don't Just know. make four, no change. Four, no change. Five or six, raise, because it's high number. Three or less, lower number, lowers the night visibility range. All right. Yeah. Now, we're already on to the second page of the night rules. Well, it's just flowing See how like, simple, like butter. Simple these rules like are. Like hot butter. Zero. What happens when a unit's night visibility range is zero? Ooh, they be stumbling. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure I've ever actually played at zero. I probably have once or something. But Actually, I don't, rem- I, I don't remember reading. It can get down to zero? It can, yeah. It can't, go dark, it can't get any darker than zero. No. <laughs> Thank goodness. Because because when it is zero and you attempt to move into a concealed defender's location, you would not be returned to the hex you just left, but you would be vulnerable to triple point blank fire from that defender if so attacked. And it cannot leave that location. You mark them with a CC. Oh, they just so, go right into close combat. Yeah. Normally yeah. you stumble into a concealed guy. Well, you deliberately go in and you're pushed back out. Right. Not in night visibility range. You stumble in there. Shots are fired. It's dark. It's yeah. a close combat. Yeah. Wow. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. If the whole game was played in the Wouldn't pitch it be? black. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd scrap that one and start again. I don't know. It might be interesting to yeah. try with now, zombies. <laughs> Why not? Now, vehicular night visibility range, a vehicle that is non-stopped, or changes its vehicle covered arc is treated as being within the viewing unit's night visibility range if it is at one and a half times the viewing unit's night visibility range. Why? Why would a vehicle that's non stopped or changing its covered arc be treated as being in the night visibility range if it's normally beyond it? No, my guess is that, you know, the because it's a large silhouette moving, yeah, it would be Perhaps easier to see. Yes, and I think you're going to hear that a little bit too. And hear it. Draw your attention to it. You know, I didn't think about that, though. When I was reading the history stuff, it did talk about something that's not brought up in Squad Leader, which is not only is it dark, but units try to move as quietly as possible. As possible. You know, in in real life. And moving a big tank is going to make some noise. Yeah. Going to draw attention. That's right. Going to have a larger silhouette. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going to be visible. 
and if that if it's a zero night range, well, then you can treat that as one for a wheeled vehicle or two for a tracked vehicle. Okay. So they seem to be drawing a distinction between wheeled and tracked, which makes me think they're thinking about noise because a tracked is noisy. That's right. Yeah. But well, I kind of wish they had put that in there because of the noise. You know, it might is it in there somewhere? I haven't I read it? the notes on yeah, each chapter in a long time. So maybe we could end up next episode reading some of those notes. Okay. To clarify. Yeah, things. that'd be good. Now, when it is snowing, what might that do to the night range? Well, I would think uh, with snow on the ground, that's going to increase the night and the NVR. Right, and that's going to increase the base NVR maximum allowable to nine. So my earlier guess was correct. Nine yeah. is about the most you can see, and it has to be with the snow. And the minimum base would be two. So with all that snow out there, it's never going it to be zero. It never gets to zero. Right. One. Yeah. You could always see at least, uh, the well, the base minimum becomes two. Yeah. You can always see one or zero. Fortifications at night. Hmm. Take a guess. Fort- Did we use fortifications at night? You had a fortified building, but I never got close enough. We didn't have uh, trenches. We had no wire. No. But didn't you have one fortified building? I thought we have wire outside there. Well, when you fortifications, remember, doesn't mean fortified building. Oh, you're right. Fortifications yes, 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 can be right. roadblocks. Yeah. Fox, old hickory. We had the foxholes. Yes. And the roadblock. And the roadblock. Out there. And the foxholes were in front of the buildings you had to take anyway. Yeah. Gave me a, a way to spread out and still have some cover. But fortifications set up hidden regardless of terrain. Yeah. So that's right. The roadblock was visible to you, um, but out of your night visibility range. Right. And it, they could all be set up hidden. And the fortifications remain hidden until their protective TEM is used, or a non-dummy enemy unit enters the location that contains it. Or that you pay that extra movement factor to enter it in the line of sight of the good order enemy unit. That reveals it. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I never liked that rule much. Yeah. So you pay an extra one to come out of a foxhole. And the foxhole was revealed. So the guys see it suddenly? I mean, what's... I guess... Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe because it's... I don't know. I could go either out way. Of the ground? I, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose, but I um, I could have gone... I could go either way on that, but I guess maybe it makes sense in, in gameplay. They decided to go with that. Yeah, certainly you use the protective train effect modifier. You're going to have to reveal it anyway to, yeah. to use that. Um, I mean, because there's always a disadvantage of coming out of a foxhole, and if it was night, there'd be no disadvantage, and you could be popping in and out of foxholes all you wanted. Oh, yes, and so. here's an additional rule to that. During night scenarios, there is no extra cost to enter or exit a pillbox or entrenchment unless it's done in the line of sight. Of a good order enemy unit. Oh. So that way they don't make you reveal it when you're out of the line of sight. Yeah. For pillbox and the entrenchments, which includes the foxholes and the trenches. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, the scenario defender. When you look at this rule, you're thinking, oh, this is getting complicated. It's it's great stuff. The scenario defender adds in all these great benefits. Do you remember what some of them were? You're going to remind me. Well, I was the defender. You didn't. You were the attacker, right? So oh, you've yes. never played a defender yet. Oh well, you had the no move mm-hmm. rule, which I I really liked that. 
Yes, the no move rule and hip 25%. Oh, In right. the initial yes. placement, 25% of the onboard squat equivalents. Fractions rounded up, as I recall. And any leaders with them, of course, mm-hmm. and weapons. And the scenario defender sets up the remaining forces concealed. So everything is concealed. Yeah. And I got dummy counters equal to the number of my squads. Right. In addition. Now, if you like fog of war yeah, and you think squad leader, you know too much about where the guys are. You want to play night rules. Yeah. And that was fun. Yeah. I had lots of concealment. Yeah. Uh, and the weapons that I had on board were placed off board. Remember that? Until I needed them. The weapons. So like my light machine guns, my medium machine guns were all recorded off board. Right. And the other cool things about the Defender. The concealments or hips. Knee units need to set up in concealment terrain, but they lose. They do not need to be in concealment terrain. Remember, I could set up in the open ground. Right. So we had that situation where Jeff was entering on the Hickory game, and I put the one squad out in the middle of the open ground behind yep. one of the victory buildings you needed. Yep. Or in front of it, I suppose. In, in front in of front, it, I think. Yeah. You entered. Is that the one with the bazooka? No. He was oh, okay. hitting uh, somewhere down in the building. On the side, behind the tanks, but or in front of the tanks, but you didn't have flinkers on that side. But this was the guy that was in this open area. You came in following the hedgerow or road, yes, right? So you wouldn't stray. We'll get to stray in a minute. And then when you got into the building and started to pass through the building at the front of your, you know, the first building you hit, yeah, he popped up from behind. Oh yes, and ran and he was in open ground and you walked right by him. That's right. Which amazed me. We talked about this rule with J.R. Tracy. He confirmed this is the correct interpretation. It's very simple. It clearly states that neither the concealed nor hip units need to set up in concealment terrain, but they lose it as if they were set up in concealment terrain. So if I just sat there and didn't move, you couldn't see those and you walked right by them. Right. In the open ground. The scenario defender also can uh, record those. Locations as if they were hip of any of the support weapons and single man counters, as we said. So I put all the single man counters and support weapons off board and wrote down where they were set up with the squads. So all my tall stacks looked a lot smaller. Yes, right. Right? Yeah. Suddenly your two squads with two lights and a 9 one are only two counters thick with a, a question on top yeah, of it. Yeah, and I like that. I like that. I mean, it didn't didn't do well for me, but I like that. Yeah, again, lots, lots more fog of war. Mm-hmm. All and right, then that, that's it, right? Those uh, no, that's, all, that's all the rules. Those no move counters. Oh, you mentioned already. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Freedom of movement. Yeah. When you set up as the defender, so I set up. I had to put all my counters on a, a no move counter. Now yeah. You can alternatively face them a different direction when they're not allowed move movement yet. Now that represents that the orders were hunker down for the night boys right yeah cover your zone yeah no one's leaving their positions because right. we won't know if you're enemy and we friendly fire might shoot it yeah so hunker down boys and stay in your positions until further orders you see an enemy or morning or something like that yeah and so technically the rule is uh each defender in a night scenario may only attempt to move and or advance if they've been attacked by the enemy. Okay, someone shot you. 
you can move. Yeah. Or uh, by other than a sniper or OBA. Yes. Oh, we're being, you know, the sniper's out there. I'm not going to get up and walk around. Or you've seen an enemy unit. Well, there they are. Let's move toward them. Right. And uh, it's free line of sight checks, by the way, for that. And once the scenario attacker is resolved, any attack other than a successful ambush, okay, the scenario's defender, single best leader, can gain that freedom of movement. And then he can kind of move around and wake everybody up or tell them, okay, new orders for you. I need you to move. So you have that best leader on your side that has to roll for freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. And he makes a die roll, one die less than his ELR. You don't get ELR a lot. And then this freedom of movement die roll can be made only once per friendly movement phase. So, and if you're allowed to move that dude... And anyone he's stacked with can also start to move. So tactically, I like to stack that guy back there with some couple squads, maybe even three, and go for that movement roll so they can get to the position of the point of attack of the enemy quickly. So it's a little reserve unit that I plan on getting into action. Although when we played, I don't think I got the freedom of movement roll with my leader. Uh, no, that was, yeah, a, I remember was a while before you frustrated, could, like, yeah. come on, I got to hit this roll and get this guy moving. Now, what, what do you need to roll? Uh, less than his ELR. His ELR, okay. On one yeah, die. Yeah. Okay. And, um, then the guy's free to move, so he can move to the next stack. Now, does he need, and, and tell I, them to move. I, I can't remember this, so does he need to be in line of sight of any of the attackers or no. anything? He can just roll. Correct. It's just once per turn. Your best yeah. leader can roll for movement. Yeah, once they're attacked, once your guys attacked anywhere, anywhere. on the board, anywhere on I the board, I can start rolling. I heard the gunfire, I guess. Okay, and started to go. Okay, I need to yeah. get into action and figure out what's going on here. Okay, so think of it that way. So, and then he can move, and he can um, release other squads in a J in whatever other hexes. Correct for movement. Right, he moves in there, uh, and at the next movement phase, if he starts it with them, they can move also. Okay. And the other, and then again, otherwise you're only moving your squads if they've seen the enemy, been attacked by other than a sniper, etc. Mm-hmm. And then there was ELR loss. The ELR of a scenario defender is printed on the OB one less than normal. I guess at night you're just not as willing to I guess. put up with stuff. Yeah, if you're not sure what's going on around you. Yeah. And there is recon. Special rule reconnaissance. Now, um, so that that make that brings up going back. That brings up an interesting point. Why not just print the ELR at one less? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think the reason is any of the night scenarios can be played as day scenarios. Is that right? Did I read that somewhere? I do not remember that. I do not remember that. I don't believe they could be. I don't think you read that somewhere. I gotta look for that. You'll have to show me later. Yeah. Okay. I'll Although look for that, because well, E point one, which I skipped, states that chapter E is all optional rules, and as such, no rule given in is used unless cited by the scenario in play or agreed upon between the players. But I think that's what you may have read that indicated. Yeah, oh, maybe that's. I it. could play them as. Yeah. Daytime games, mm-hmm. but no, with okay. all this complicated rules and. Playtesting, it wouldn't just transfer like that. Yeah. So I think that's what you had read. Okay. 
Uh, reconnaissance is a special scenario rule, so it doesn't just come automatically with knight. But it's kind of cool. Uh, you can have your attacker make the recon die roll, one die, after the defender set up, and prior to your own setup, and the final die roll is a number of hexes that the attacker can pick in which uh, the defender would show what's in there, right? Oh. So you make a, a die roll, and then you kind of point around the board. It chosen by, like, you, the attacker. Mm-hmm. You could have said, oh, I want to see what's in there, and in there, and in there. Hidden units would be placed, and the setup hex is concealed. Concealed units would lose their concealment. Hmm. And you get the right to inspect those stacks. Those stacks. Yeah, that's you don't have to have line of sight to anything. It's just yeah. reconnaissance die roll. Hmm. Interesting. Modified by British, Partisans, Russians, Japanese, a plus one. That's good. Yeah. Stealthy, a plus one. You're good at sneaking around and finding stuff. Yeah. Germans, US zero, all other nationalities, neg one. And lax, of course, is neg one. Yeah. And now we'll finish up page two. And then maybe pick up with page E3 next show. Because the rest of page 2, E2, rule 1.3, the concealment rules. Now, do you remember anything offhand about those? Well, if you're out of NVR, you can conceal, right? Even in the open. I believe that, well, you got me on that one. (laughs) Um, I think so. Because you're not in line of sight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, there was that thing, well, cloaking. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, conceal would be retained more easily or more? Yeah, more easily. At night. Right. Otherwise, it's identical to daylight concealment. Yeah. Night concealment varies in three ways. The loss, an infantry would lose its concealment, or cloaking. I guess we'll briefly describe cloaking. Okay, you remember you laid out that card the yeah there's a chart there's a cloaking chart on the player aid and yeah. you lined up the squads how well you put um you put a cloaking marker on the board where the squads would be but on the cloaking chart you actually put the squads or and leaders whatever in there that would occupy that spot on the board so t- so to you to the to the opponent all they see is a single counter on the board when actually it could be more because they're cloaked. And they're wearing the cloaking device. Those concealment <laughs> counters are of a different nationality. Right. Yes. And so all I see is coming at me is concealment counter J. Right. And on your play chart, you have in the box J. Could be one squad, two squads, two squads three squads, half a squad. Yeah. And I have no idea. And so all these cloaking counters are coming at me. So to lose cloaking or concealment at night, if you did a non-assault movement in a location that's already illuminated. Right. Right? Moving so they're through running. the lights. Mm-hmm. Don't go there. And when they illuminate it and you're moving, you have the option to... Hit the deck. Hit the deck. Hit the ground. Stop moving. And then you don't lose that cloaking or concealment. I love right. that, too. Yeah. The idea that these guys are moving along, concealed, and a flare comes up. Do you like that sound? Yeah, I like that. Boy, that was and me. gently wash flashback from the sky. <laughs> and then you stop moving. Yeah. Hit the deck. And you can retain your concealment even in the open ground. So that's exciting. 
so to lose it, it has to be illuminated when you go into it. Or you can lose it if you enter an enemy-occupied location, of course. Makes sense. Otherwise, you don't lose your cloaking or concealment at night when moving or advancing. So it could be in the open. Movement from an illuminated location into a non-illuminated location incurs loss of the cloaking only if it requires the expenditure of the movement factor in the illuminated location, such as leaving a foxhole, but not for crossing a hex side into a non-illuminated location. So if you leave the light and run into the dark, you're okay. Yeah. If you leave the foxhole in the light before you cross over to the dark, you're not you're, okay. You're not okay. Yeah. Now, gaining your concealment, as you said, uh, in a daylight scenario, uh, situations requiring a die roll in daylight, which mm-hmm. is that open ground stuff, mm-hmm. out of line of sight, whatever, automatic. So you're correct. Yeah. And an unconcealed unit beyond night visibility range is never known to the viewing unit. So for route purposes and all those other kinds of things. Yeah. And then we'll wrap up here with 1.4, half of it at least, cloaking. We just kind of described it. So cloaked units are treated as concealed, and all rules pertaining to the concealment apply to the cloaking except as follows. Uh, As we said, you put them on the ID numbers, you put them on that card. It can be any number of infantry and their portage weapons up to the normal stacking limits. So it couldn't be more than three. Yes. Or it can represent no units at all, a dummy, which can be eliminated by its owner at any time. The actual contents of each one are recorded in that Chapter K divider. That was the name I couldn't come up with. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of those could be empty. So you see twice as many cloaking counters coming at you as normal counters or units or squads in the game. Right, didn't we get twice as many, and then some of those can be empty, okay, with nothing at all. So I, totally I guess fake, uh, fake out your opponent. Yeah, I guess the the real life application of that would be where you're just um, you're seeing things. Yeah, your imagination. Your is imagination wild with you yeah. at night. Yeah, yeah. Adding I didn't do that. I should. Do, I should have. Well, I oh, you that mixed next them time. in with regular yeah, units. I, and, yep, all of them. Yeah, I've played before and used them all on like a left flank attack Mm -hmm. and pin down enemy units that might have been otherwise eligible to move, assuming all those other um, rules were, you know, allowed them to see. And then, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you get one cloaking counter for each squad. I was wrong about that. One for each squad. But when you're putting three squads into one cloaking, that leaves you with two free cloaking counters, right, to be nothing in them. Yeah. Right. So it's only one, but it, it's often double because people will double up those counters. Yeah. Or more. And a cloaking counter has six movement factors, regardless of its context, contents. And you just move six. You don't increase that except for road. And cloak counters can portage four or five portage points as if they were three. So what they're trying to do is give the cloaking counters the ability to move together so you're not guessing, well, that's going slowly. They might have the heavy machine gun. Right. Russian heavy machine gun with five portage points, and so it's trying to give you that ability to move them all at six, regardless of leaders, um, regardless of the weight of the weapons, up to certain limits. Otherwise, the cloaked infantry cannot portage more than its IPC. However, a support weapon with 
uh, greater than or equal to four percentage points cannot be fired in the player turn it loses its cloaked status. So you don't get to... Right, yeah, I remember that. I think that came up when we were playing. And uh, we had to dismantle the cloaked weapons if possible, too. Right. could be dismantled. Yeah. They're moving them at night, making them lighter for you. And quieter. Yes. Because some of those guns with their tripods and stuff were clankety. Clankety clank. And, you know, I'll go ahead and finish 1.4, which gets us to page E3. Uh, The movement costs for the cloak encounters were the same as daytime costs. And when voluntarily revealed, you place them on board, and they revert to their normal movement. So, you you know, if you're moving yeah. to 6 and they're revealed, then you go to normal movement for any future movement taken, minus what you already did. And then stacking, they cloaking counters always move as a stack unless the owner wishes to remove the cloaking counter and replace it with the actual units. Cloaking counter may not split into two or more, but you could... Combine them. There was no limit to the number of cloaking counters that could occupy a location, strategically or tactically. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. You want to spread those things out, keep the enemy guessing Mm -hmm. where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But there was no limit to the number of cloaking counters. However, when two or more cloaking counters occupy the same location, their owner must check their box to see if they're overstacked. Ah. And then you lose your ability. So you'd kind of be revealing your hand. Yeah, you would. Right? So you yeah. wouldn't re- I don't think you'd want to do that. No. If listeners come up with a reason why, let me know. And a human wave would lose its cloaking. Yes. And I guess they're all running out berserk or something or, you know, a little while there, lose that cloak status. And it's also lost for any situation which would cause you to lose concealment at night and making an attack, right? Right. Other than a successful ambush. And then you don't regain those things. Once you lose those cloaking things, you set them aside and you start playing regular ASL. And it may sound like adding all those, you know, adding the cloaking counters makes a big difference in the time. Remember how quickly they went, the yeah, games? Yeah, it did. Yeah. I think Jeff and I found the the night rules, all the cloaking counters, it's the same number of squads you have anyway. They don't slow the game down. And when no. you're moving at night, you're not seeing a lot, so you're moving quick. Yeah. And we found it to be... Fast play, at least. It didn't yeah. really bog the game down a lot. I mean, I, I had a little a little hard time, just the way my brain works, remembering what I had in the associated with each cloak encounter. So I had a couple of switched around where I thought, oh, I thought I had three squads there, and it was actually only like two half squads or something like that. Yeah, and I do that all the time. But I've know. always complained. I forget where my hiddens are in yeah. specific scenarios, yes, and I just put yes. them out anyway. Yeah. But um, keep looking back at it. Yeah. You know, and it's hey, not that bad. Maybe you could use an extra board on oh, the side. That's an idea. And actually move your normal units mm-hmm. on it. So, you know? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that would help. Yeah. And you could easily quick look and know where your guys are coming. Right. That would help. Yeah, I like that idea. I just thought of it. We'll call that the uh, the Kleinschmidt move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Kleinschmidt. You're looking pretty stuff. T- tired yeah. there, Jeff. Am I? Yeah, I'm feeling a little tired today. And I guess I will add on a history report coming up here. Yeah, that'll be very good. Right? Yep. And then we'll sign out after that. And we'll do uh, night more Nipe. Two or maybe three. We'll see how, yeah. how long it takes. Well, let's do part two first. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good idea. Okay. Your imagination kind of runs away with you, I guess, especially when you hear noises. And, of course, at night it was worse because you really didn't know what was happening.
Now our history report from Jack. Thank you again, Jack. The major combatants covered here differed in their approach to warfare through doctrine and not surprisingly, these differences translated into emphasis on night combat. The Soviets, the Germans, the Japanese, and the British American Canadian forces are considered. First, the Soviets. The Soviets had a long history of night operations before World War II. The conflict with the Ottoman Turks in 1877-1878 saw night attacks. The Russo-Japanese War had no fewer than 106 different night actions by the Russians. The victorious Red Army campaign in the Crimean during the Civil War came to a head with the capture of the Perikov Isthmus by troops wading across the icy waters of Shabash Bay at night, November of 1920. Carrying this history forward to World War II, the Soviets initially made use of night skirmishers and raiders at the company and regimental lever level. It was not until the drastic retreat slowed and offense rebounded that night operations grew in size and scope. The Germans believed that the Russian soldier was particularly well suited to night operations, both physically and psychologically, given the harsh and primitive conditions of the agrarian state in which they were raised. General Gunther Blumentritt, while chief of staff in the 4th Army, Moscow, called the Russians night-happy. During 27th of January through February 1st, 1942, approximately 2,000 paratroops landed in successive night waves against the communication lines of the 4th Army. The Moscow counterattack involved brutal night fighting in the heart of the Russian winter, reportedly 40 below zero. Perhaps Blumentritt was correct. Now, later in 1942, the breakout at Stalingrad on August 20th occurred at night when elements of the 63rd Army crossed the Don River near midnight. The attack on this first night may have started in haste. One brigade commander jumped in and swam the Don, followed by 300 of his troops. However, on 21st of August, following mixed units from the night before, elements of the 197th Rifles, 14th Guards Rifles, and the 203rd Rifle Division crossed just after midnight, consolidated the Don River Bridgehead, and eventually led to the encirclement and destruction of von Paulus' 6th Army. In September of 42, operations against Guderian's 12th Panzer and 17th Panzer were conducted by Belov with CAV. Heavy losses and a withdrawal from the Rostov sector resulted. When command transferred for the 17th Panzer on October 1st, only 30 tanks and a third of its trucks remained operational. Intelligence briefings from the time reveal that all operations occurred at night and that cavalry attacks were made dismounted. Russian briefings on the actions state that prior planning was essential down to the assignments of specific targets to specific squads. Attacks commenced from midnight to 5 in the morning to take advantage of the night concealment. Weapons were packed in on foot to the launching area to avoid noise and were conducted with squads, anti-tank weapons, grenades, bottles of gasoline, and heavy machine guns dismounted from their carriages. The operations of the Soviets increased in frequency and size throughout the remainder of the war. Some historians assert 40% of the major Soviet combat operations during 44 and 45 occurred in night attacks. General Zhukov believed that night operations were no different from day operations, but for the increased need for coordinating signals. In the initial launch of the attack on Berlin, the Soviets employed banks of searchlights to blind their opposition and guide their own efforts. The inevitable smoke and haze limited the effectiveness somewhat, but the attack pressed on nonetheless. Hey, searchlights, that could be cool for ASL rules. Don't have those in the, in the official rules. And then we'll take a look at the American, and, um, and that's where Jack ends his history report on the Ru uh, Russians. 
he continues with the Americans and the British. American tactical doctrine stressed the use of resources available and the expedient nature of attacks exploiting perceived weaknesses. And as such, night actions beyond patrols and raids evolved organically in many cases for the Americans and British. At the divisional level, night provided much of the cover for actions on large-scale deception by American units, most notably in the Western European theater by the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, using sonic half-tracks, blasted sounds of armor on the move from large speakers, and visual deception, inflatable tanks, for example. These deceptions allowed combat units to move undetected or contributed to misinformation as to the launching points of attacks against the German army. The British began all of their attacks in North Africa at night when rolling through the narrow band of line defining the North African coastline. The obvious advantage of night limited the extreme range, otherwise favoring the emplaced defenders. In the Pacific, both the British and the American forces fought extensively at night, through, though most frequently in response to Japanese-initiated action. Naturally, the Normandy landings were preceded by extensive night drops by paratroopers. Special forces operations more commonly occurred at night than core line unit operations. The largest of these special operation missions at night were perhaps the Dieppe Raid on August 19, 1942. Technically, this would be a pre-dawn raid as the twilight of false dawn would have emerged on a clear day roughly one hour later. Nevertheless, for reasons unrelated to the night attack, the raid was a disaster under any estimation. Combat by first-line units following the Normandy invasion, continued nearly around the clock, with a few breaks. While elite units were present, that distinction is stretched when applied to the British 3rd ID. However, nearly all of the units present on D-Day did initiate night operations during the war in other actions. The American 3rd ID was noted for using night operations as a standard practice during the Sicily, Italian, and Southern France campaigns. Notably, this division suffered the most KIA casualties of any U.S. unit in the war. The American 30th Infantry Division developed similar tendencies toward night operations in France, Belgium, and Holland. Specific American first-line units did receive intensive training in night operations by design. The 104th Timberwolves launched over 100 night attacks through Holland and Germany. Unit Patch bore the words Night Fighters as the 1st Combat Division specifically trained for primary operations at night. This primary focus training, however, was the exception rather than the rule. And then Jack moves to the Germans. The German forces had an interesting evolution following World War I. The post-war reorganization of forces began in earnest with the publication by General Hans von Secht of the Doctrinal Combined Arms Leadership in Battle. In this directive volume, von Secht outlined the methods of tactical accomplishment expected of the evolving German defense force. Recall that the Treaty of Versailles was an especially punitive and restrictive limitation on German forces to prevent further aggression. As such, it went beyond the surface need as far as it left the Germans unprepared for response to hostile incursion. 
An army of 100,000 men only was the restriction. As von Secht was convinced that Germany, that, that Germany had to play within the rules of the treaty, he set out the methods of a fluid force in describing the aim of, of response to focus upon greater mobility, greater training, cleverness in the use of terrain and night conditions as a means to overcome the lack of advanced weaponry. Chapter 9 especially deals with various conditions such as delaying actions, battles in villages and woods, and battle at night and in fog. As events in Germany unfolded, von Sicht and his guide were replaced by the Truppenhung from those of officers less concerned with adhering to the political rules imposed on the army. Recall that in the end, the Nazi party party's rearmament campaign completely disregarded the treaties and positions. The army corps became a technical one of complicated equipment. Mechanization was new in the world, best integrated in conditions of good visibility. Coordinations of forces was the key concept. Oddly, even the evolution of special forces embodied the Fallschirmjäger in the, the Fallschirmjäger under student did not embrace night operations in favor of daylight coordination. Drops were scheduled to Poland in 1939, perhaps to be at night, but on October 27th of that year, student was summoned to see Hitler and advise that the drops had been called off as the Fallschirmjäger troops were too valuable to use in Poland. In Barbarossa against the Soviets in June of 1941, airdrops near Bogdanov came at 1,500 local time, and in Italy in July 43, jumps came at 1815 military time. Again at Monterdondo in September 43, an attempt to destroy the coordinated command of Italy after its capitulation, the attack came after 6.30. Night attacks did occur by German troops in North Africa. Field Marshal Montgomery details in his journal published under El Alamein to the River Sangro, the title, in 1948, that the battle for Alam Halfa, initiated by Rommel, commenced at night. Three separate thrusts came in coordinated fashion on a broad scale against the 9th Australians in the north, the 5th Indian Division in the middle, and the 2nd New Zealand Division in the south by the units of the 90th Light Division and the 15th Panzer and 21st Panzer. Organic evolution of tactics proceeded in this desert crucible. Intelligence reports indicate that by November of 43, German night actions were restricted to a response to attacks or to the dispatch of only a small fighting patrol. And even this was exceptional. There is, however, mention of emplaced German tanks using coaxial machine guns against any object which could be SP artillery or allied tanks. At night, any ricochet would indicate a target of value and would bring immediate main armament fire. The Germans traded machine gun ammo for night reconnaissance knowledge. Initially, intelligence briefings of 43 contain a reference to field tactical instructions distributed by the Germans. Among the list of adjustments for night tactics are the instructions to wear service caps rather than helmets to improve hearing, and to approach the suspected enemy locations from downwind if possible, to better eliminate the noise of the approach and restrict smell. And that's where he finishes the Germans. And we'll wrap it up with the Japanese tactics. 
Japan's evolution into a night fighting force began as a means to combat, combat a lack of technologically advanced equipment. Evolution of tactical elements such as the triangular division over the square division force and its associated heavier support requirements was solely a factor of cost and resource allocation. Now, published tactical doctrine stressed close engagement with the enemy by infantry with his destruction brought about in hand-to-hand combat. Note that this doctrine evolved at the same time the Germans were embracing coordinated combined arms effort to isolate and destroy their opposition. The most important tactical mission of the 1920 and 30 training manuals for field leaders emphasized guarantee the attacking Japanese infantry reached the position with a minimum of friendly losses. Wow, I don't think they did that a lot. In the 1925 edition of the Infantry Manual, methods to achieve the close engagement successfully stressed cooperation of combat armed units, improved modern communication methods for command and control, and night fighting. However, by 1928, the revised edition focused on solving the problems with the material at hand and stressed night fighting and training in night maneuver as the best way to achieve desired outcomes. Examples of training and its night emphasis are clear in the operations of the Imperial Japanese Army 7th Division in a special place spelled T-S-I-T-S-I-H-A-R. Sorry, I never heard of it. Concentrated drills focused on bayonet practice and maneuver. The climax of infantry combat was a bayonet charge on the enemy positions. Most of this newly created division deployed against the Soviets in Manchuria, completed their first year of company training and uh, of intensive night training, averaging around 10 hours per week of dedicated night field practice. Intelligence reports stressed that the troops were taught by their officers that night attacks exploited bravery, tenacity, shrewdness, and audacity. In 1939, the Japanese fought a night action against the Soviets near Lake Kashan, members of the 1st Battalion attacked Soviets and seized a 150-meter-high ridge in a vicious night fighting at close quarters. The Japanese held the ridge for the next 12 days. This night attack against the Soviets was viewed as a huge endorsement for the night doctrine by Imperial Japanese Army High Command and strengthened the faith in the tactic against larger and better equipped forces. Ultimately, Japan lost this 1939-based border war with the Soviets and entered into a formal neutrality pact until 1945. However, this battle in the early days of World War II solidified the tactical principles of the Imperial Japanese Army. British Pacific intelligence reports outline that the Japanese preference was to initiate attack at dusk during the early war in 1942. They would then take as much position as possible as the attack progressed, and consolidated the position by night maneuver when it eventually broke down. They reorganized surviving forces against counterattacks by the Allies, knowing they would come at dawn. In the Philippines in 42, attacks were made by troops specially trained and practiced in night operations. These attacks came around midnight and intensified during periods of a full moon. The Japanese would involve regular troops in these attacks, but infiltration tended to involve the specialists. Small parties worked forward in groups as infiltrators. They remained quiet and hidden during the following day. And then on the following night, more troops would join a general attack, and the infiltrators would spring, hoping to break the lines and cut off mutually supporting positions. 
1943, in Milne Bay, the Japanese advanced during night and then tactically withdrew during the day, leaving dozens of men secured to the tops of trees. As forces advanced during daylight in pursuit of the routing force, the men in trees would harass the attackers, causing casualties and disruption. The Japanese even remained in the treetops when shot. They were secured by their bindings. On Guadalcanal, small parties would advance on one evening through valleys in dense cover and concealment, reserving the open terrain and high ground for the main body to follow the next night in attack. These forward operations would include trailblazing by clearing undergrowth, as well as painting routes with luminous paint. The main body attacked along the corridors prepared by the advance groups. Ridge lines, crests, points of distinction, served as common waypoints for fighting that increasingly became defensive, punctuated with aggressive, almost guerrilla resistance in the method pursued at night. Of course, the Soviets and their attacks in 1945 were exploited night attacks, and the massive combined arms tactics of these aggressors rolled up the infantry units deployed against the newly formed tank armies. The Soviets relentlessly employed armored leapfrogging of operational units and men in action and, and night against day and night against the depleted Imperial Japanese Army, resulting in the August Storm of 1945. This action covered more territory in less time than any other operation in World War II. The Japanese were defeated by that technologically advanced army. Their tactics were specifically constructed to defeat. So I don't know as much about that August storm. I'd like to see more about that and more ASL scenarios based on that. So, Jack, thank you for that in-depth research for our history report this evening. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think, listeners. Well, thank you for doing that history report, Dave. Good information submitted by... By Jack. By Jack. Thank you, Jack, for that fine work that you've done. You're a good man. So I guess that wraps up we'll our wrap that night up. episode number one, episode 61. And night forward, part one. Yeah. Looking forward to night part two. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Bye-bye. We'll see you next time. And remember... Roll low. And do rally well, even if it's dark. But not, but not when, when you're, you're playing, playing us. us. Of course not. Bye-bye. Bye. I knew somebody. I, actually, I played somebody the other day that rolled low and rallied well while he was playing me. That was uh, very disturbing. That's very disturbing. That's very disturbing. I mean, can't he follow simple directions? What was he thinking of? Do not know. Do not know. I'm going to give him a good talking to.